This podcast is sponsored by American Plastic Makers. Sustainability is a critical issue. And on the new Sustainably Speaking podcast, we'll talk with trailblazing leaders who champion solutions to ensure a more sustainable and low-carbon future. Subscribe today and don't miss this limited episode podcast. And this episode is also sponsored by Fiscal Note ESG Solutions, bringing together Equilibrium, an AI-powered ESG platform, global advisory, and intelligence to help organizations achieve their ESG goals. Visit fiscalnote.com ESG. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, a legislator weighs in on the anti-ESG phenomenon, how sustainability is faring in the still-reeling UK, and a campaign to pass green amendments in every U.S. state. We're voting for Planet Earth this week on 350. It's November 4th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, is my favorite candidate, Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather, what are you running for this year? <laughs> I'm running for sanity. I, yeah. I, I, I'm campaigning on everyone should be sane and not have to listen to everything that's going on around us. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope I you win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Hey, I have a little a little stat here, that, uh, you know, personal stat here. I voted for the first time 50 years ago this month. That's not the stat, actually. Uh, by the <laughs> way, it didn't go so well. That was uh, uh, George McGovern. That was 1972 was the first year that under 21s could vote. I was 20 um, and, uh, you know, did not turn out so well. George McGovern got 17, count them, 17 electoral votes to Richard Nixon's, I think, 500 and something. Uh, but it did get me in the in the just habit and and the habit is such that i was thinking about this i don't to the best of my recollection i don't think that i have missed voting primary general runoff election in 50 years wow that's a i mean that's pretty that's pretty amazing i mean i i have actually um interestingly and i was thinking about this the other day I haven't missed voting either, except for like my first opportunity because I was um, when I turned eighteen, I was I went to school in Canada, oh. <laughs> and I didn't I didn't I don't know if I, I I don't remember if I did an absentee ballot or not. I don't think I did. Yeah. Um. But uh, I definitely missed that one. And then um. But I'm actually a person. I have voted more often via mail or mail in ballot or you know handed in ballot than I have in person. Oh, yeah. Um. Because I've always been traveling right yeah. around election day. It's just been like a part of my work life. And so I get like very tweaked when I hear people talk about, you know, you have to go in, per-, you know, like not no. wanting to have the opportunity to do that. I just. I haven't been in a vote. Boiling. 
I haven't been in a voting booth in 20 some, maybe 25 wow. years. Um, I, I always do it on permanent absentee ballot here in California. But here's the thing. You know, my family used to gather around the kitchen table before election and the state of California would send out this sample ballot and this huge booklet Ooh. of everything. <laughs> and we would discuss it as kids, you know, mm. what, the issues of the propositions on the ballot, ballot initiatives. And yeah. so it just became natural thing for me That's to vote, great. and yeah. and and so uh, I, I just want to say out there to everybody, I truly, sincerely hope that it becomes a, a habit for you as well, um, starting this week and next. So um, please go out, go out and do that. But you know what, we we have a number of features, and we're going to skip through. The weekend review. Uh, there's some great stories out there, uh, and lots coming on. Obviously, COP 27 is coming up, and uh, we can talk about that maybe next week. Um, but let's just get into uh, our first feature. Well, it's another month and another bit of chaos over in the UK, and all of that in the run up to COP 27, which is uh, just about to get going. Uh, and that's all good reason to check in with James Murray, the editor-in-chief of Business Green. Hey, James. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I mean, it's a bit of a roller coaster, and we have you have now uh, a new prime minister again in the UK. Yep. Uh, what do you think the prospects are, and, and how does that change from the, shall we dare call it the Liz Truss era, uh, uh, around... Um, how the UK is going to be approaching climate and COP27 and, and all of that. It's all an absolute mess, isn't it? I mean, we are on to our third prime minister in three months. Um, our, what is it? Our, our fifth prime minister in six years since the Brexit vote. Um, I think somebody worked out the other day, like the energy and climate minister brief has had something like five different people in that chair in the last two years. I mean, it's just sort of absolute chaos. Um, in, in terms of the climate agenda, I mean, in some ways, some things kind of you know it hasn't changed a huge amount because Liz Truss was nominally committed to net zero. Um, you know she was probably closer to the climate skeptic wing of the party than Rishi Sunak is, but you know she also did make some encouraging moves on climate. She she lifted the ban on new onshore wind farms in the UK um, and and made some sort of broadly positive noises about investment in new energy and the like. There's not any huge changes on that, really. I mean, Rishi Sunak's come in and again sort of immediately confirmed that he remains committed to net zero. Um, there's some slightly worrying policy changes in that he is a bit more hawkish on blocking onshore wind farms um, and solar farms um, than even Trust was. So that that potential upside uh, might disappear with, with Trust leaving the building. Uh, but then equally, he has immediately come in and reinstated the ban on fracking uh, in the UK, which which slightly bizarrely was one of the things that ultimately brought Liz, da Liz Trust down because there was this this vote in the Commons on fracking. Um, she wanted a, a vote that would effectively, well, well Labour orchestrated the vote, the opposition orchestrated the vote to try and embarrass the government. And then the government completely embarrassed itself by com totally falling apart as to how to manage the vote. MPs were furious, and that ultimately triggered the kind of the challenge that, that got rid of uh, Liz Truss, all, all because of this slightly bizarre attempt to start fracking in Lancashire, which is uh, was never going to fly. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's all a bit up in the air. No one's particularly clear on what's going to happen. Um, nominally, they're still committed, but through all this chaos, you're just not seeing the development of a really coherent plan 
to strengthen and accelerate our net zero transition, which uh, the courts have said the government needs to deliver by next spring. So, uh, yeah, chaos reigns. Yeah, well, and then on top of all that, as we're speaking earlier in the week, um, uh, the new prime minister says he's not going to go to COP27. Is that significant? How big of a deal if he doesn't go is that? Well, yeah, that was quite an interesting move because he his number ten initially said he wasn't going to go to COP twenty seven. He was too busy working on the new budget that needs to come out in mid November, and that he's focused on domestic issues. Um, and then within a few days, uh, he they kind of rode back on that slightly and said that he could now still go uh, if they've made sufficient progress on the budget. So they are now leaving the door open for him to go. Uh, that sort of a partial U-turn seems to have been triggered by the sheer scale of the criticism they got for him saying that he wouldn't go. There was considerable outcry, including from his own colleagues. So the the COP26 president at the moment, Alok Sharma, um, obviously Britain still holds the the COP presidency. You know, he he was absolutely clear. He, he's normally a, a complete loyalist, but he did turn around and say, no, hang on, I think the prime minister should be there. Lots of public figures uh, said the same. Quite a few of his backbenchers said the same. And then there were reports that emerged over the weekend that Boris Johnson, our prime minister, but one before Truss, um, the the man who was prime minister as recently as August, but is, is still, <laughs> still two prime ministers ago. That far. Yeah. yeah, indeed. Um, it, he let it be known that he was considering going to COP27. Um, and, and he was always a very big vocal cheerleader for COP26. So there was a sense of maybe him trying to show up his uh, his successor, and that seems to have sparked a bit of a rethink in number 10. Well, what difference does any of that make, whether uh, e- either one of them goes or neither of them goes, or they both go? Or how, does, how does that change anything? Well, I mean, there's there's two reasons why I think it's quite important that he, he does go. Um, well, firstly, well, maybe there's three reasons. Firstly, you know, the UK holds the COP26 presidency. You know, it would be a bit strange for the leader of the country that is holding the presidency not to go and attend and be seen to attend and make those public comments and send the market signals that we are very serious about delivering on the Paris Agreement and decarbonising as quickly as possible. So there's that precedent. Um, secondly, uh, it's it seems slightly strange that a new prime minister wouldn't want to be seen on this big global stage with a central role. Um, the thing about what happened last year in Glasgow is it did change the structure of the COPs a bit, whereas previously we were talking about sort of updating plans every five years and you have a big COP every five years. The Glasgow Climate Pact was quite clear that countries had to come back this year with more ambitious plans. Um, and and obviously, there's also going to be a very big argument about sort of climate finance at the summit. So there's going to be big negotiations. And again, for, for a prime minister not to want to meet his allies, I think something like 90 world leaders are meant to be going. Um, I believe Joe Biden's currently planning to go. Emmanuel Macron's currently planning to go. Obviously, lots and lots of developing economy leaders are planning to go and, 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 and you know, from all around the world. Um, you've just had President Lula's victory in Brazil. So that shifted the kind of the, the balance slightly in terms of authoritarians versus slightly more progressive figures who want to protect the Amazon. So there's there's lots of dynamics there. And it, it, it just seemed a little bit weird geopolitically for him not to want to go. And, th- and then finally, from a UK perspective, it is just about the market signals that you send. So, you know, we need to mobilise billions of pounds worth of investment in our low carbon net zero transition. Here's one of the biggest media moments, public moments of the year to talk about climate change. 
and the new prime minister apparently doesn't want to go and use that platform. Um, and, and it's only, you know, it's only in Egypt as well. It's only, he could be there and back in 48 hours. It's not a kind of big trip in that regard. Uh, so yeah, all a bit strange. So uh, real quickly before we have to go, uh, where's the business community and all this? Does it, any of this make any difference whatsoever in terms of their trajectories towards net zero and decarbonizing and everything else? Um, I mean, as ever, it's that, that classic yes and no. I mean, in the long term, no. You know, the business community that's committed to net zero will continue to advance the net zero transition, remain serious about it. The economics all stack up. But, you know, changing prime minister yet again, they've all had to write their letters yet again saying these are the policy areas you should be focusing on decarbonisation. This is why we're worried about the lack of investment going into low carbon infrastructure. These are some of the policy ideas you need to do on energy efficiency, on renewables, on electric vehicles. And it's just that sort of sense of instability and uncertainty, all of which hampers investor confidence at a time when obviously interest rates are higher than they've been for years. Um, and there are these considerable economic headwinds. So um, I think everyone's just hoping for a, just a little bit of seriousness and stability and ambition on, on the net zero front so that companies can start to execute uh, some of these really ambitious plans that they have. Yeah, that and a warm winter will go a long way towards calming things down on your side of the pond. Uh, James Murray is Editor-in-Chief of Business Green in London. James, it's always a pleasure. Thanks, John. Harrison, Director and Senior Analyst for Sustainable Finance and ESG with GreenBiz Group, and a proud and gratefully rent-controlled San Francisco resident. Given that many of us from sea to rising sea are currently wading our way through midterm ballots, I decided to check in with my local California state senator, Scott Weiner, Senator for District 11, which captures all of the city and county of San Francisco and some of its southern surroundings. No more than five seconds into our conversation, a 5.1 magnitude earthquake hit the Golden State. So we spent the first bit of time just hanging out in suspense, waiting to see if there was more to come. I will skip over that tense silence and instead share a bit of what Senator Weiner had to share on where ESG and California intersect and about his climate priorities between now and 2030. First, his thoughts on the rippling anti-ESG wave. I mean, first of all, it's really tragic um, that the at least the, the the base that's driving the Republican Party, I don't want to say all Republicans fit in this category, but the base that is driving the Republican Party is a cult. And there's no other way to describe it. Um, and, and, and like uh, people who are deeply brainwashed into thinking that Joe Biden wasn't elected president and that, you know, January 6th wasn't a big deal and, and that climate change is not real. And you know, if you have these major, or, you know, major um, financial players like a BlackRock, who are saying it's important to transition as a matter of just having you know successful capitalism, then then maybe maybe they should listen to that, and, and that it's not BlackRock isn't being you know woke or whatever other pejorative term they like to use. They're doing it because that's where capitalism has to move. Uh, and so it's really tragic they're doing that. And uh, when these 
uh, red states attorneys general and treasurers and governors, et cetera, try to do this, it just stiffens our resolve here to move in the other direction. And so I have a, there's a group of, uh, of senators, uh, about a half a dozen of us who are in regular communication talking about these issues and strategizing how we'll be working together. You know, we had two bills this year, um, I, I had SB 260 to require uh, large corporations doing business in California to disclose their entire carbon footprint. Uh, that bill got almost to the end and fell one vote short on the assembly floor. We're going to try again next year. Um, and then my colleague, Senator Lena Gonzalez, had a, a bill to require CalPERS and CalSTRS to divest uh, from fossil fuel. That also failed, but um, um, I'm, I haven't spoken to her about it yet, but I'm sure she'll consider reintroducing that. Um, and so uh, we're, and my colleague, uh, Senator Henry Stern is also very engaged. So we're, we're, we're I, I suspect we will have a package of bills in 2023 um, to move in the opposite directions as the, um, as some of these red states. I then asked the Senator about the role of municipal pensions, like his own retirement vehicle, the San Francisco Employees Retirement System. I think large municipal pension funds have a role to play as, too, as well. But the reality is that CalPERS and CalSTRS are so massive and so impactful that when you start having the, the really truly behemoth retirement funds uh, uh, doing this, it, it's extremely impactful. So I'm not, yeah. I'm not in any way dismissing what San Francisco is doing. I, so I publicly supported it and voted uh, in favor of that policy when I was in the Board of Supervisors. So it's important. And SFRs is a good sized pension fund, but boy, having CalPERS and CalSTRS fully on board will, would be quite impactful. Senator Weiner has passed significant climate legislation, including notable clean energy storage investment and significant work on housing here in San Francisco. I asked him for a sense of what his priorities on climate are between now and 2030. Yeah, I think, you know, I don't pretend to be an expert in it, but um, I do think when you look at the history of San Francisco, we we really do tend to produce some amazingly innovative um, sectors. And, and, you know, we saw a lot of the, you know, in technology and biotech, um, where some of the earliest adopters are, are here. Um, and so I, I'm really excited about um, uh, the real possibility of a burgeoning climate tech sector here in San Francisco. You've just heard from California State Senator Scott Weiner. Maya Van Rossum is a veteran environmentalist and the founder of Green Amendments for the Generations, a national nonprofit that aims to encourage the passage of green amendments in every U.S. state. The goal of these amendments is to establish protections for environmental rights that are akin to those of other precepts such as free speech. So far, these amendments have passed in New York, Montana, and Pennsylvania, and there are efforts ongoing in at least a dozen other states. Maya joins us to talk more about this concept and why it matters to businesses. Maya, thanks for joining us on Green Biz 350. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. This is intriguing to me. So let's start with a grounding. What is a Green Amendment and where did the idea come from? 
So a green amendment is an amendment that gets added to the Bill of Rights section of our state constitutions. Ultimately, we will also want to get a federal green amendment. And it very literally recognizes the rights of all people to clean water and clean air, a stable climate and healthy environments. And because of that Bill of Rights placement and because of the choice of language that we use, it does, as you have said, it raises up environmental rights. So they're given the same highest constitutional standing and protection that we do give to those other fundamental rights we hold dear, like the rights to free speech and freedom of religion. And there are a lot of other really valuable qualities, like often green amendments are generational, recognizing the rights of present and future generations, for example. The way the idea came about, or at least the way the idea of the Green Amendment movement came about, was that I am my role as the Delaware Riverkeeper. I've, I've had the honor of serving as the Delaware Riverkeeper and being an environmental advocate for 30 years now, um, have been fighting many challenges um, to protect the Delaware River. And in the course of that work, there was in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, one of my watershed states, a very excruciatingly pro-industry law that was passed. And long story short, it was going to put in place automatic waivers from environmental protection standards, preempt local zoning authorities so that industrial fracking operations were allowed to happen in the heart of residential communities, and the law was really going to allow the industrial fracking industry to expand exponentially in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in ways that would have had devastating ramifications for human health, for the environment, and for businesses of all kinds. Because the law had been passed by the Pennsylvania legislature and signed by the governor, there weren't very many options for how to check this inappropriate law that was going to wreak so much havoc on Pennsylvania's communities. So I, in my role as the Delaware Riverkeeper, was thinking, how can we challenge this law? And I recognized that actually decades before in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, there had been added to the Bill of Rights section of the Constitution this right to a clean, safe and healthy environment. Early on, that amendment had been misinterpreted and misapplied and literally robbed of its legal life. But I felt that this law that had been passed was so egregious and such an incredible overreach that maybe we were in the moment in time that we could get that Pennsylvania Bill of Rights provision reconsidered. And in the end, our legal challenge challenged this pro-fracking law as being a violation of the Pennsylvania Green Amendment, its Environmental Rights Amendment. The case went all the way up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, a very conservative Supreme Court at the time, led by a very conservative Chief Justice, agreed with me and said that, yes, the provisions in this law were in fact an incredible overreach that was going to wreak tremendous harm on Pennsylvania's communities and environments. And the provisions of the law that we were concerned about were struck down as being unconstitutional. And at the same time, this long ignored environmental rights amendment got legal life. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. reflected on that victory. I looked at every state constitution across the nation and found that only Montana had a similar provision. And I decided mm -hmm. that I needed to change that. Wow. Okay. So a lot to unpack there. I want to ask two really specific questions. One is, how long was that Pennsylvania amend amendment in place? Like, was it something that was passed 100 years ago? 
decades ago? Like, curious. I'm curious about the the, the lifetime of that amendment. So the the amendment was actually. Uh, put in the Pennsylvania Constitution in 1971. And it was placed there by a unanimous vote of the Pennsylvania legislature. They actually had to vote on it twice. And then it went before the people of Pennsylvania who voted to add it to the Pennsylvania Constitution by a vote of four to one. So it had very, very powerful support. But the early cases that were brought trying to use it were themselves a real overreach in the wrong direction. And In reaction, the Pennsylvania court said, you know what, this amendment is just a statement of policy. It doesn't behave like the other Bill of Rights provisions in the Constitution, and we're not going to give it that legal strength. And that's how things stood for the 42 years before the case that I and seven municipalities brought in the context I just talked about. Got it. Got it. And the other thing I'm wondering about, um, because it it matters a lot for many of the things that are going on right now is how does it acknowledge the rights of indigenous communities? Is there, I mean, because they have obviously their own nationhood, um, different tribes. Does it also cover or acknowledge indigenous communities? So it does not specifically um speak to indigenous communities. And and as you said, right, Native American communities have their own sovereignty, right, and their own entitlement to govern themselves. So a Green Amendment does not change that. It does not place on um, indigenous leadership any obligations, any legal obligations. On the other hand, when state governments behave in a way take actions that have serious consequences for indigenous communities, result in them being disproportionately impacted by environmental pollution or degradation. This Green Amendment can be used as a tool for those communities to protect themselves. And in fact, it will operate that that way as well for all environmental justice communities, all communities of color, indigenous communities, low-income communities that are disproportionately impacted by environmental pollution and degradation will be able to turn to these green amendments to get the increased and necessary protection so that they too can ha- can enjoy clean water and clean air, healthy environments like so many others in the United States. Got it. So Montana had something similar on the books. Um, New York, you didn't mention New York though. So that sounds like a, a case that, or a situation that where you were involved in making it happen. Can you give a little bit of context around that? Yeah. So our our Pennsylvania victory and sort of my what I call in my book, I titled this chapter the Green Amendment Epiphany that I had, where I decided we needed this kind of amendment in every state. That um that success happened in 2013. And Since 2013, I've been going on this journey trying to inspire other communities to see the powerful benefits of this kind of environmental recognition and protection. And more and more states have been coming on board, communities, legislators, businesses of all kinds, getting interested in the values of having constitutional recognition of environmental rights. New York was one of the earlier states that came to this Green Amendment table. And as a result of working with communities in New York, they actually passed their Green Amendment in November of 2021. So it's very new, and we're just now seeing how it's going to be working in the state of New York. 
Mm -hmm. Okay, so you just referenced your book, which is out this week. So tell us a little bit. Let's do a little plug here for a moment. Let's take a brief break. Tell me about the book. Brief book break. (laughs) So the book is called The Green Amendment, The People's Fight for a Clean, Safe, and Healthy Environment. It's actually the second edition of the book. The first edition was published in 2017 and got some really, um, I was honored by some really wonderful accolades. Between 2017 and now, though, there's been a lot of developments in the Green (laughs) Amendment movement, a lot of successes, a lot of states coming to the table. I've been learning a lot of lessons and being able to see... learn about new new stories, new things happening on the ground that demonstrate why this pathway of environmental recognition is so incredibly valuable. And I really wanted to include those stories in the book, bring it up to date, let people know about how the Green Amendment movement has been evolving and the many new ways that people can get involved. So I decided to write a second edition of the book. And as you said, it's just fresh off, hot off the presses, as they say. So obviously, this audience is a very industry, corporate business audience. So what are the economic implications of this? You know, you you set it up at the beginning. There was this very pro-industry law that took it too far, essentially. What are the economic implications of a Green Amendment? So, you know, we we always hear this false narrative uh, that I think the political operatives put out there that we have to make a choice between a healthy economy or a healthy environment, healthy business development or clean water and clean air. And that really is a false choice, as we have demonstrated in this country and around the world. The two are inextricably entwined together. If you want to have a healthy economy, if you want to have healthy workers that are coming in and doing their jobs effectively, you have to have a healthy environment too. You have to have good quality water and air. You have to have people who are living quality, healthy lives. Of course, we have to have a stable climate, right? The the downside of environmental pollution and degradation hits all of us, including business communities. So we want to advance environmental protection in a way that benefits us all. A Green Amendment, what it does is it really helps us accomplish that by recognizing that we all do want and need and as people on this earth are entitled to things, basic fundamentals of life like clean water and clean air, a stable climate and healthy environments. And what having a constitutional Green Amendment will do is it helps us better interpret and apply the environmental protection laws that we have on the books. It helps us recognize when there's a gap in the law that needs to be filled and maybe we need better protections advanced, or there's a gap in the law that there that, that needs to be filled in the moment. And having people have a constitutional right to clean water can help us fill that gap. And a good example of that is PFAS that man-made family of chemicals called per or polyfluoroalkyl chemicals. It's used in stain-resistant clothing and carpeting in Teflon. Because of a gap in the law, those chemicals were allowed to be used in ways that proliferated into the environment, not just devastating um, people's healthy lives, but has had serious ramifications for businesses of all kinds. If there had been green amendments in place when this gap in the law was allowing the proliferation of PFAS, 
we, the people, all of us could have turned to the constitutional right to clean water to prevent the harm before it started. So I think that's just, you know, just recognizing that businesses, just like people, benefit from, want, and need a clean, safe, and healthy environment is the place to start. And green amendments are a positive way for us all to come come together around that basic principle and help advance that important goal. Mm-hmm. So New York was the latest. Where's the where is this most active right now? Is there are there a couple of states that um, where there's a lot of action on this? So I think our most active states right now are New Mexico, Washington, Maine. New Jersey, Delaware, and Hawaii. So it's really a mix. And there are a lot of other interesting states that are coming on board. I the Green Amendment. I've been speaking with people in, in Nevada. I mean, whether you're on the East Coast or the West Coast or right in the middle, there is interest in this pathway for protection because everybody does recognize when we harm the environment, it costs us. It doesn't just cost us in human health, but from a business perspective, right? A lot of business operations, they need clean water to manufacture their products. If the water's contaminated, they have to pay to clean it up in order to do their work. Um, And of course it costs us as taxpayers, as members of the community to address the ravages of pollution and degradation. For example, when communities are flooding and suffering from flood damages, we all have to pay for the cleanup, right? And to get things back on track. Um, So having a clean and healthy environment makes things better, makes things more positive for business operations. It It makes money, but it also saves money for all of us. One last question for you. How can the corporate world support the movement? How can they be involved in a better way? So I think one of the most powerful things that people in business can and should be doing is standing with communities that would like to see the passage of constitutional green amendments and make very, very clear, this is not about business against the people or business against the environment. This is about all of us recognizing that a clean, safe and healthy environment does benefit us all. And if business um, owners and operators and leaders could come out and say, look, we are not against the green amendment. We are not against environmental protection. We are for the environment. And we recognize that that having that basic principle where our constitution recognizes the rights of all of us to clean water, clean air, and a healthy environment, um, this is something that business leaders support alongside of community members. And let's join together in advancing this positive message. There's nothing to be frightened from here by any of us, when we are all operating in a way in good faith to best protect our environment, um, a green amendment only helps advance that joint common cause of all of us. So let's stand together and business leaders signing a letter, testifying at public hearings, speaking to the press with letters to the editor or responding to reporters and saying, yeah, We as a business believe in the rights of all people to a clean, safe, and healthy environment. We support the Green Amendment. That would be a really powerful message. Well, Maya, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You just heard from Maya Van Rossum, founder of Green Amendments for the Generations. 
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you can learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. And while you're over there, check out our free weekly newsletters. We've got seven of them and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you can sign up. As always, we welcome your comments, your questions and tips. Just hit us up. Our address 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Don't forget to vote, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by American Plastic Makers. Sustainability is a critical issue, and on the new Sustainably Speaking podcast, we'll talk with trailblazing leaders who champion solutions to ensure a more sustainable and low-carbon future. Subscribe today and don't miss this limited episode podcast. And this episode is also sponsored by Fiscal Note ESG Solutions, bringing together Equilibrium, an AI-powered ESG platform, global advisory, and intelligence to help organizations achieve their ESG goals. Visit fiscalnote.com slash ESG.